Welcome to the open Zoom. We're in the month of Adar Bet. So Purim quickly approaches. I just wanted to share a quick insight on uh, not taking things literally as found in the Talmud. So I'm going to pull up this file here. And this is something that uh, we came across last week, not trying to uh, find it in particular, but you know, every time I always talk about it's an allegory, it's a metaphor, it's not, it's not meant to be taken literally. And here I am minding my own business and it's in Ketubot 111b. And it was just so crazy to come across this. So it says another statement from the same Amora, which is the period of the Amarim. And they actually, I'm going to go ahead and pull this up so I don't mess it up. I'm going to go over here to new window just so I don't get this out of whack I've learned how to hide this thing I think it's the video panel nope uh no hide the floating controls there we go all right so uh this is something you can actually find online on wikipedia which is actually a really good source for this I was going to say the Amarim were before the Tanaim, and by golly, I'm so glad I did not say that. <laughs> that would have been a fail of epic proportions. Anyway, uh, here's your Amorek period. Uh, also, this is in the Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1. I don't know why I didn't just pull that out. Anyway, here's a quick reference so you can kind of see the time frame. Pretty much after 200 CE into um, just past what is this that is four six okay so five would be right there so somewhere around the 500 mark is the next group of people uh, but the amarim are called interpreters and they're interpreters of what the repeaters and teachers aka the tanaim say and remember, that is the time period 10 CE to 220. So that was the time where Yeshua was here and um, the Talmudim uh, and the other, uh, uh, the other followers of Mashiach also uh, penned a lot of their letters. And this is why I've been really trying to uh, vocalize and verbalize that if we're looking at the Basora or if we're looking at the letters, the Igerot, then uh, you should know that that is called Tanaic writing. And it was uh, during the, the mission, uh, the Tanaic period when it was written. So, okay. So now back to what I was saying over here. So there's an Amora who's making a statement and it's concerning the resurrection. And it says, Rav Kia Bar Yosef said the righteous are destined to stand up in their clothes when they will be resurrected. And this is something I've actually um, had a short conversation with my Havruta about because I was telling him like, you know, like physically trying to get my mind in a space of like what it's going to look like when people who passed away, like start rising up. And um, obviously he hit me with the not literal because Hashem, he, he said it in this, this uh, way. Hashem has more style than that. 
you know, then the whole like, oh, waking up out of the tomb, shaking the dirt off your clothes and then coming out and people think you a zombie. You know, I was like, yeah, because right now the world's fixated on zombies. So the resurrection would look like, oh, no, we got to kill these people. And it's just like, wow, thanks a lot, uh, pop culture and media and all that. What you got? Hollywood. Uh, yeah, Hollywood. So he was just like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be like that. And I was just like, yeah, you're right, because I mean, that would be like I said, it'd be awkward. But uh, who knows, really? Because I mean, even the uh, this, the commentary we're reading right now, it is literally not literal. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, just want to bring this up. And I actually asked one of my uh, coworkers who isn't even like observant or anything like that. And I asked him like, what, what are your thoughts on resurrection? And he was just like, I never thought about it, but I know it's not like what the church teaches. And I'm like, okay. So it, he just, he spoke in terms of like, you know, like when our soul passes away from our body, it's more of like an energy transfer type thing. And if you really think about the, the re-energizing of, you know, a human body, what would that really entail, especially if there's been decomposition, you know, things like that, certain ways that people's bodies have been taken care of post uh, death situations. So like the dry bones. And uh, that is definitely one of the key passages that's actually used in uh, reference to the resurrection is the Valley of Dry Bones, because that was the tribe of Ephraim that left Mitzrayim 30 years before we were supposed to actually leave Mitzrayim. So those were the bones that actually got resurrected. And the Talmud says, not only did they get resurrected, but they showed up to Babel, aka Babylon, where King Nebuchadnezzar had his statue all raised up, thought he was high and mighty. And they came and started literally smacking people. So uh, <laughs> that's a crazy section of Talmud about what that uh, tribe actually did and how they actually went and had families and they had children and one of the uh, commentators in that section of time was like, yeah, I'm one of them. So I know this literally happened. And I'm like, okay. So back over here, because we're in Ketuba. We're not in uh, Tractate Sanhedrin. Okay, so it says, we may derive this through a Kalvachomer argument based upon the growth of a grain of wheat. Now, isn't this crazy? Because did not Yeshua talk about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying? Let's see your wheat fall down and we get up, wheat fall down. See, okay. Berov Shira Vezimra, it's going down right now. <laughs> uh, let's go with the, is there a TLV up in here? I love the TLV. Not TLB, but TLV. No, there it is. I may not, may not tell you unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Isn't it crazy that, um, what was that verse? John 12, 24. Isn't it crazy that that is what the Talmud is using uh, as far as an analogy to a grain of wheat, talking about a person passing away? And Yeshua was using that same topic because he was talking about him passing away because he was going to be resurrected. So, yeah, resurrection and wheat. And then that's not even it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. 
This is one of my favorite sites, so I'm gonna go here. Gotta learn how to spell, 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of the dead. There should be something about a seed. Let's keep going down. Resurrection of the body, round 35. Okay, there it is. Verse 37, and what you sow is not the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has designed. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So, again, this was brought up because in verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will, uh, will they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And again, John 12, 24 says the seed falls into the ground and it dies. Okay, so now um, the other thing, I think he talks more about it maybe later. Oh, yeah, verse 44. It is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual, however, was not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from Shemaim, and was the earthly man. Or as was the earthly man, so also are those of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so, are, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so also we shall bear the likeness of the heavenly man. So again, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, referencing with John 12, 24, and Ketubo 111b. So if you ever need a commentary on the New Testament, as people like to say, there it is. There's a tag in the house. This is Shramo talking about the seed falling to the ground. Can you come over here? Yeah. And what is this you're reading from? Bear sheet, Rabba 28. 28.4. It says... From what will the Holy One blessed seed cause people to sprout upon upon the resurrection of the dead in the messianic future? Rabbi Yehoshua replied to him, from the loose bone of the spine. Adrian said to Rabbi Yehoshua, from where do you know this? Rabbi Yehoshua replied, bring me, bring me one and I will show you. He brought a loose bone to Rabbi Yehoshua and he ground it into a mill, but it did not become ground. He burned it in the fire, but it did not become burned. And he placed it in water, but it did not disintegrate. Finally, he placed it on the anvil and began striking it with a hammer. And the anvil split apart, and the hammer shattered, but nothing uh, at all was missing from the bone. Footnote says, our Midrash tells us of this indestructible nature of the loose bone, and of it being the seed from which the body will be reconstituted at the time of the resurrection of the dead. 28 four. No, the loose bone. Back of the neck. The top of the spine. It says. So from, coming from the Rabbi bone. Rabbi Yehoshua replied to him from the loose bone of the spine. 
Excellent. Okay. So, wow. Didn't know I could do this. Okay. So I'm learning a lot of stuff while I'm sharing right now. Okay, so it says, if a grain of wheat that is buried, i.e. planted in the ground, bare, nevertheless emerges with many garments of mature stalk of wheat, then the righteous who are buried in their clothes to begin with, how much more so is it true they will emerge with their clothes? So this is crazy. So you put the seed of wheat in the ground and then it comes out and you look at the wheat plant. Like, let's go ahead and do that. Um, get down over there and go to a picture of wheat. Yeah, here we go. Check that out. That's so beautiful. So that all comes from a, a seed that does not look anything like that. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, so just as far as being able to have a visual, there we go. So now, what does it mean in their clothes? Here's what it says. At the surface level of this agotic statement, Tosaphos discuss whether the Gemara means the righteous will be resurrected with the clothes they were buried in or with the clothes they wore during their lifetimes. See also Gilion Hashas. In this statement's deeper meaning, Maharal here and Sanhedrin 90b explains that these clothes are not garments of wool or linen, but rather the spiritual persona of each righteous person. See, however, Hasagos Ha Ravad to Hilkot Shuba 8.2. This means that the righteous will not be resurrected as human blank slates, but rather each will rise with the combination of saintly characteristics they possessed before they died. E, for example, a, a propensity to aid the downtrodden or to clarify halakhic issues or to be absorbed in prayer. This are these unique spiritual personalities are the clothes of the righteous. See also Hidushe Gaonim here. On okay, so break this down for just a second. So we already went from it's not literally talking about the clothes that we were buried in, but like the persona, like the uh the attributes of a person. And then you have the whole aspect of this being things that you were you had a propensity for during your lifetime so you're going to be resurrected in a sense through your deeds which i think that's crazy but yeah um he resurrects the poor and neat huh he resurrects the poor they're poor in deeds and mitzvot the drop from uh when I had the highlight that I sent you? Mm -hmm. uh, that was pre, no, uh, Rabbi Weiss. No. That wasn't Rabbi Weiss? No. Oh, you're talking about that drop. I always thought you were talking about the one yeah, from the Zadaka drop. He raises the poor from the dust. Tana Debe uh, Eliyahu. We'll just read it again. So you, I don't know if you can see this, but I'm going to hold it up to the camera anyway. 
This was shared on the signal thread from Shlomo, Tana de Be Eliyahu, um, page 48. So I'm gonna go ahead and read the footnote real quick. That um yeah, that footnote would be good. I think it was 11, yeah. So 1 Samuel 2.8 reads, to make them sit with those whose hearts have ever been willing and inherit the throne of glory. The word nedibim, which is for princes, uh, may also be read those whose hearts have been ever willing. So sitting with princes or those who have willing hearts. Then, so that's like a textual thing. But it says, in the days of Mashiach and the world to come, along with the righteous, God will raise up the dust, or raise out of the dust the poor. And that's 1 Samuel 2.8. The poor here signify the poor and good deeds. Why should he raise these up, since they have been guilty of many transgressions and had had the penalty of premature death imposed upon them and their children over a span of four generations? As it is said, I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that continue to hate me. Exodus 20, verse 5. Nevertheless, he will raise these transgressors up if just before they died, they had turned about and had yearned for repentance. Hence the footnote saying, to make them sit with those whose hearts have ever been willing and then that is the whole connection here of even the poor will be raised up because they had a willing heart for mitzvot. And it says they yearned uh, for repentance, yearned to read scripture and recite Mishnah. God's distress on their account will allow him no comfort until he will have raised them out of the dust onto their feet, seated them with or between his knees taken them into his arms, held them close, and kissed them, and brought them into the life of the world to come. So, yeah. And then they quote Psalm 113, verse 7, which is, um, he will raise up out of the dust the poor in good deeds, and from the dunghill he will lift up the needy, those in need of good deeds, to their credit, that he may set them with those whose hearts have ever been willing. Psalm 113.7. This is the other thing too that we have to realize about people who may not be quote unquote Jewish or Torah observant. Most times they uh, there's, a, there's a yearning for things that we have no awareness of. And, and many times people are very, very zealous for worship and service to God. And they don't know about the Mishnah. They don't know about uh, Torah uh, portions or the Siddur or the different Yom Tovim and things like that. But based off of the fact that they have a yearning to draw near and be close to God as possible, Hashem already has that in their credit. And that's already based off of what we just read from the Tana Debe Eliyahu. So if you're wondering about your friends or family that are in different religions and you're in Judaism, well, that has to be taken into account as well. So just a little uh, clarity there. So back to where we were here. The next part goes on to saying, on this general topic, see Rabbi Yanai's statement in Shabbat 114a, 
references cited in Margalios Hayam to Sanhedrin 90b, <clears throat> also uh, section 19, and Miktav Eliyahu 4, page 154 through 155. See also Hafez Chaim, Shem Olam. Now, the reason I'm reciting all this, the more sources you share about something, the more redemption you bring into the world. That is from Pirkei Avot 6.6. So it's always good to source out stuff, even if it's extra. It's like how much redemption you want. Uh, it's like I'll take two scoops of ice cream if I had the option. Okay, so I'll take two loaves of challah at one time if I could and not share with anybody. I bake them their own and then share that with them. Anyway, Sha'ar Hachaz HaTorah 14. I am a hot mess. Who discusses the Malboshe? Hod, which is Hebrew for the garments, which is malbush, and uh, of splendor and purity, which is the word hod, that clothe the soul. So the other thing, too, is when we talk about our bodies being raised up again, we're going to have more of a spiritual uh, influx happening in our existence as opposed to more uh, fleshly in earth. Because remember, in the garden, we were fashioned from the earth, but our bodies were completely covered in light. So to some extent, we're going to like have the reverse of that, where it's like instead of our uh, bodies being more earthly, they're actually going to be more heavenly material. And uh, the spiritual is actually going to like completely nourish the body to the point of uh, thinking of eating and drinking that won't be like one of our drives because we're going to get our sustenance more from our spirituality than from our physicality. So that's what I mean by reverse, not necessarily saying the physical makeup of our body, but just the way that things work. Like right now, in order to sustain a person's life, they have to eat, they have to drink, they have to take medications if they have certain ailments and things like that. Well, in the time to come, it's all going to flow from the spirit, from the soul, that's going to generate and power the body. So eating and drinking and doing all the other stuff that we do right now is going to be kind of like an afterthought. So um, I don't know why the piece about not taking things literally isn't in there. I need to find that. So you know what? I am going to go to Ketubo 111 which is over here, stand by. I don't know if anyone's joined the broadcast since I've started, but you definitely feel free to chime in if you would like. I just wanted to capture this topic of not taking things literally uh, on, a, on a recording so that we can have it posted. So, Ketubot 111b. Okay. Then I think what I do is where am I? Oh, there we go. Stop screen share and start screen share. Oh man, this is awesome. This is like working a switchboard. Okay. Take that away again. 
hit this button. Okay. 111B, I was around footnote 27. Okay. Ah, here it is. So it starts on footnote 29, which is in reference to this next section. So it says, and Rav Chia Bar Yosef said, the soil of Eretz Yisrael is destined to produce ready-made baked goods, AKA Hala, among many other things, and fine woolen clothes. As it says, there will be abundant, which is fisas, uh, grain on the earth, the word fisas can, can be understood to allude to both bread rolls and fine wool. So this one time food and clothing could be used as the same word in Hebrew. Might want to be careful what you're ordering because you might end up with bread when you needed a t-shirt. Okay, so Rashi, what does he say? The word pisat is a cognate to both pas hayad which is palm of the hand, see Daniel 5.5, 5. and ketunet pasim, a tunic of fine wool. This is what Yaakov gave to Yosef. If the former, the verse is speaking of grain, because it's interesting, because pas is the same thing um, as the palm of the hand. And uh, you can talk about the way the kernel of the wheat is fits in the palm of the hand. You take the bread in the palm of your hand, all that. Well, there's actually a midrash about the garments of Yosef after he was thrown in the pit and he was sold to the merchants. He was actually uh, gifted a garment from one of the angels that fit in the palm of his hand. And then it ended up opening up and covering his whole body. So kind of like nanotech or the uh, Black Panther suit, if you've seen the Black Panther movie. Uh, that was what Yosef had. So, and that's all connected to this word for pas, which is pe samik. Okay, so then it says, if the former is talking about grain, that is as wide as the palm of one's hand, since a wheat kernel is, I should have just read this instead of going over that example. <laughs> since a wheat kernel is not this wide, the verse must be speaking of a grain product such as a bread roll, which is typically this white, or a hollow loaf. If, on the other hand, pisat is related to ketonet pasim, it refers to a fabric of fine wool, and the word bar is interpreted to mean pure or clean, like bar soap. As in, I'm sorry, as in the verse, Song of Songs 610, Clears the sun, which is bara ka hama. And that's Rashi there, Rashi to Shabbat 30b. Okay. What are you talking about? Shira Shireen, Song of Songs 610, bara, like bet, resh, hey. And then ka hama, which is kaf. Chet mem he. That means clears the sun. You thinking of Barkama? Barkama, yeah. This is like what I was thinking of. Yep, not, not quite. Uh, since both expositions are equally plausible, they are both expounded upon in Bava Kama. 
<laughs> not to be confused with Barachama. See, Hebrew boy, I be getting you. Okay, so skipping all this for a second, but just know the earth is going to do miraculous produce in the time to come. The the best example we have right now is how you can go online and order food and it shows up to your door. And you're just like, you didn't go plant it. You didn't go do anything. It's just like, you just was like, I need food and it shows up. Obviously you had to pay for it, but uh, we won't have to pay for the food that's going to come out of the earth in the future. Just a heads up. We also had this in the garden, which is why Adam and Haba had to work it and tend it because the earth was already giving off ready-made food and we just walked up to it and, and ate it. So we're basically the whole world's going to turn into Ghani then. And we have the Rosh Hodesh drop about the trees that'll uh, renew their uh, produce every 30 days. So whenever it's Rosh Hodesh, the tree will go into producing a different kind of fruit. Uh, this is echoed in Revelation at like 21, 22. Uh, and it all comes from the fact that there is a giant river flowing out of the new Jerusalem that flows through Jerusalem and all the way out even to the Dead Sea, which is why the Dead Sea, which is currently, well, they say life is actually starting to form there now. So it used to be a thing of the past. There wasn't a life there, but now there is. Um, and it's going to continue to increase. So signs of being in the redemption. Again, that's another one. The redemption process of what it's going to be like for the arrival of Mashiach, the building of the third temple, the gathering of the exiles, that's all a process that's taking place right now. So this is why we're literally called the last generation of exile, first generation of Geula. Technically, that's previous generation, but, you know, it's all there. Anyway, I wasn't really meaning to talk about that. So if that's not 100% accurate, um, that wasn't where I was going. But that is the gist of it. Anyway. Get to the point about the uh, not literal. Rambam uses this Gemara as a model for any agotic teachings concerning the Messianic era, the resurrection of the dead, and the world to come. He notes that when people encounter these Agadot, they fall into three distinct groups. So here's the first group. The largest in Rambam's time understands every word of the teachings in an absolutely literal sense. Okay, so I, I used to be in group one. I'm just going to confess. <laughs> they do not attach any allegorical meaning to them at all, despite the bizarre conclusions to which this approach leads them. And, you know, in my defense and in group one's defense, hey, Hashem split the sea. How come he can't do all this other stuff? Anyway, uh, they simply accept as necessarily true that which is physically impossible. And again, you have the whole thing that Messiah said with man, it's impossible. But with Hashem, it is. There's nothing impossible for Hashem. But obviously, the sages have lots to say about that, because one of the main questions, and this is in Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1, can Hashem create or will Hashem create a rock that he cannot lift? Boy, that's a, that's a drosh for days. Anyway, um, so Rambam asserts forcefully that though this group imagines they are rendering honor to the sages, 
In fact, they are destroying the Torah's elegance, dimming its radiance and making it look foolish. I'm just going to tell you, as a former Group 1 candidate or uh, member, I never in my mind thought I want to destroy the Torah. I want to uh, make the Torah look like it's retarded or uh, foolish uh, or anything uh, demeaning. But that ends up being what happens when we take everything literally, especially when it's allegorical and uh, midrashic in nature. And the other part about this is this literally is the phrase that is Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the Torah. This is the literal meaning of abolish the Torah. It means to destroy the Torah's elegance, dim its radiance, and make it foolish. So that's group one. Notice that um, we don't necessarily condemn group one, but just saying that there's a group of people that um, are in that group. Group two, wow, of which Rumbum says there are also many. They set themselves up as critics of the sages. They assume that these agotic statements were meant literally, and they deride them, dismissing the sages who uttered them as primitive and ignorant. These pretenders, oh my gosh, to scholarship conclude that the sages were not their equals in understanding or clear thinking. Uh, wow, group two, what's going on? Hey, what's going on? Just calm down, group two. Rambam writes that this second group is more foolish than the first. <laughs> I don't know why the line, if you're not first, you're not, you're not or if you're not first, you're last. Is coming up in my mind, but sometimes you kind of feel like at least I wasn't in group two. Labriute. <laughs> but again, we shouldn't be looking down on people. So let's let's move on. So Rambam writes the second group is more foolish than the first. They lash out foolishly at men whose profundity has already been demonstrated among any men of real intelligence. A good part of Maharal's Be'er Hagola which is the word for exile, by the way, was written in reaction to such critics. So hold up. Maharal was like, dude, y'all are like a wellspring, which is Be'er, of exile. My gosh. Okay, group three. Pull up, pull up. Okay, the third group are those few. Many find it, or uh, narrow is the path. Few find it, right? Well, here's group three. There are few who have come to appreciate the greatness of the sages and their perspectives. They arrived as such an appreciation by noting that the limited number of sages' insights that this group does comprehend ring so true and possess so much depth. While depth, not death, uh, while the members of this group are fully aware of what is possible and impossible, in the natural world, they also know that the sages did not spout nonsense. Thus, they realize that these statements that are bizarre on their faces were meant metaphorically. 
So the whole kernel of wheat and the seed falling into the ground and dying and the whole thing about the righteous being raised up in their clothes, we understand that's metaphor. And it possesses so much depth. Welcome to group three. Bezrat Hashem, we're all here. The sage who made such a statement veiled his insight with an allegory, as is the custom of men of great wisdom. When a member of this third group encounters a dictum that seems completely beyond credibility, he will pause, a.k.a. he will say, Selah, realizing it is a metaphor and remain and remain absorbed with and focused upon the dictum until he uncovers the underlying concept. This right here is the main point of what I wanted to share on this recording is this is prayerfully where we as Magan Yashenu have been able to move towards, if not um, set up our, our camp. Because this group, this third group, understanding that the sages are not just saying all, this is not frivolous statements. And some things we can take literally, like Hashem literally fed us, you know, uh, bread from the sky. Uh, when the manna came down, there was literally water that flowed rivers coming out of one single rock. You know, there were actually moving clouds around us and things like that. But when we look at um, some of these other statements, especially like the resurrection and, um, you know, the miraculous productivity of the earth, um, we should camp out here. We should realize it's a veiled insight. And we should understand that we need to take some time and meditate on these things, be absorbed with and focused until we uncover the underlying concept. So here's another one too. This last approach, the Rambam states, is of course the only valid approach to some seemingly inexplicable agadot. And Rambam proceeds to explain several of these statements regarding the Messianic era, the resurrection of the dead, and the world to come along these lines. However, even in this subset of Agadic statements, one is not guaranteed. No, look at this. One is not guaranteed to arrive at the true inner meaning of the Gemara at all times. Welcome to Two Jews, Three Opinions. 70 faces of Torah. If you're in the camp of Arizal, 600,000 faces of Torah. So now this is where the different arguments or the seemingly contradictions come into play because one is not guaranteed to arrive at the true inner meaning of the Gemara at all times. And remember, like, when you look at the Talmud, it's full of people who argued and disagreed with one another. But it was done for the sake of heaven, which is the only reason we still have it in existence. Any argument that is for the sake of heaven will remain. Anyone that is not will ultimately uh, be annihilated or gone. So it's another important line for us to take in as well, that as we're reading all of our sources, we need to understand we're going to come to different conclusions at different times. And even when we come to those conclusions, 
because we keep studying, because we keep observing, those conclusions are going to shift. So that over time, you know, once we were like, well, I was not okay with this, but now you're starting to see things about it. Uh, I'll tell you a personal one was the whole thing about the wife of Yitzhak, namely, namely Rivka, who was considered to be three years old when they got married. Now, my literal mind never, ever pictured Rivka as a three-year-old girl walking down to the hoopah. But I was not okay with the sages calling her three. And I was like, they mean 33. They mean 23. They mean 13. You know, certainly there's something going on here. But even to this day, I understand that there is way more than meets the eye. Why would the sages say that? So anyway. Uh, that is a real, real thing going on. So uh, in Hilkot Malachim 12.1, Rambam notes that for many of the teachings and for many scriptural passages concerning the Messianic era, definitive interpretations will have to wait until we actually experience those days. Uh, how do you end the recording? Uh, figure this out over here. Boom. So shalom and